a way maker, a miracle worker. That is just simply who you are. And we look to you this morning. We ask for more of your mercy. Pour out your mercy upon us that we may learn your ways, that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling you've placed in our lives. Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak through me this morning. May I speak your words, not my words. For this is your church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please get your Bibles out this morning. We're starting a brand new sermon series entitled Different. The sermon this morning is called Truth Matters. Um, for some of you, this may sound familiar. This is more of an introduction to the entire series. But this may sound familiar if you're familiar with um, the Truth Project that is put on by Focus on the Family and Dr. Del Tackett. I want to use some of that stuff this morning in this sermon. And the simple fact is, for us as children of God, as believers, we are to be different. We are to act in a countercultural way. And perhaps in no other time in history than what is taking place in our world right now, can we see a sharp contrast between the lifestyle of believers, true believers, in the lifestyle of the world. But I want to begin by going back even to the very, very beginning. And it is widely agreed upon by most scholars that when God first spoke, and as he spoke, he created all things, and out of nothing, everything came out of the mouth of God. He brought everything into being. In his first creation, it is widely believed and accepted by most scholars, was the angelic host or angelic beings. And the angels, we believe, were witness to the rest of God's creation. Now, it is also widely agreed upon, uh, our best guess is that Satan, or Lucifer at the time, had the position of authority over the angelic host. He was a very, very powerful angel. And on day six of God's creation, his masterpiece is revealed. And of course, who is God's masterpiece? It is humanity. We are unique because we bear the image of God. We are made in his image. And we have the freedom to choose whom we will worship. We are to worship God alone. And perhaps it's because Lucifer had this position of authority over all the angels that he thought that humanity was under his authority as well. And perhaps it was when he realized that this was not the case, 
And you couple that with his obsession with self. Remember, the scriptures tell us that Lucifer became impressed with his own beauty, his own intelligence, his own power, his position, that he began to desire for himself the honor and glory that belonged to God alone. And so what happened is he was kicked out of heaven. He and about a third of the angels fell from heaven. That was when his name was changed from Lucifer, which meant morning star, to Satan, which means adversary. Now, when Satan next appears on the scene, he is in the Garden of Eden. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I have a question for us. How does Satan deceive Eve? Well, he offers Eve another choice. I'm going to call what he offered Eve, Satan's truth claims. Did God really say, was his first truth claim. His second truth claim was, you will not surely die. And I can imagine that all creation hung in suspense, waiting to see if man would choose God's truth claims or Satan's truth claims. We chose poorly. And from that point on, a war began. A battle for truth. Now, God said this in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 15. You can go there since you're at Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, clearly from this verse, Genesis 3.15, two offspring would fill the earth. Now, they represent two sides in this war, this war for truth. The offspring of God and the offspring of Satan. Now, Jesus affirms this when he says in John 18, 37, I think I have that up there for us. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In a war, for there to be a war, there have to be two opposing sides. And here Jesus clearly says, 
either you're on the side of truth or you are not. If you are on the side of truth, you listen to God. The Apostle John affirms Jesus' point. He writes this, and this is all throughout the Bible, the idea of sides and the idea of this battle for truth. In 1 John 4, just listen to this, starting in verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, meaning the world, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They, the other side, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And then the rest of the world and the world listens to them. So there's the one side, it's the side of the world. Contrast, we, verse 6, are from God. We are from God. Now watch this. And whoever now knows God listens to us. Jesus said the same thing. Everyone this side of truth listens to me. Whoever knows God listens to his people, his leaders, his spokesmen. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So how do we know if we are from God or we are of God? We will listen to truth. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood by those who listen. So those who understand the truth, listen to it, follow the truth, they have the spirit of truth. Those who don't listen to the truth, they're under spirit of falsehood. Very clear contrast. And so either you are on the side of truth or what other side are you on? Because there's only one other side. You're on the side of lies. Now let's look at the last part of Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity or strife or conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this last half of this verse refers to one of the offspring of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Of course, this is a reference to a coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, the question is this. Why did he come? The scriptures don't say he didn't come to crush the head. Why did Jesus come? Again, let's go back to John 18, 37. This is the first part of the verse. In fact, for this reason I was born. This is Jesus speaking. So this is the reason I was born. Why I became a man. And for this I came into the world. This is the reason I came into the world. And what is the reason? To testify to the truth. The clear implication is this world is filled with lies. There is a war going on between truth and lies. Now that begs the question, obviously, <clears throat> what is truth? Actually, what is truth? Well, when you begin to understand 
this war that is going on, you understand that truth really matters. So what is truth? Well, Pilate actually asked Jesus that question right before he delivered him to be crucified. What is truth in John 18, 38? And Jesus already said, everyone in the sight of truth listens to me. I want to read to you a quote from the recently deceased Ravi Zacharias, passed away a couple weeks ago. He said this, that the single most important question anyone can ask is what is truth? If you were to go out into your workplace or go to your neighbors, just go out and randomly ask people, what is truth? How do you define truth? I guarantee, because I've done this before, you would get a wide-ranging array of answers. R.C. Sproul wrote this, truth is defined by that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God because God's perception of reality is never distorted. And one more quote from Ravi Zacharias, speaking on the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. So when Pilate looked at Jesus and asked, what is truth? And walks away. He walked away from the greatest authority on the greatest question and committed the greatest crime at that time. What is truth? Well, we know that Jesus is truth. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized or came through Jesus Christ. John 1.17. John 14.6. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, why is Jesus the truth? Why is he claimed to be the truth? Well, he is the creator. And if truth is defined as that which corresponds to reality, the scriptures say that reality is found in Jesus Christ. Truth is found in Jesus Christ. So he himself is the standard of truth, the source of truth. The word of God is truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. John 14, 16, the Holy Spirit is truth. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And what do we call the Holy Spirit? Who is he? The Spirit of truth. This concept of truth is so important you see it played out throughout the Bible. Just the word truth alone. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the double emphatic, truly, truly. You read that. Truly, truly, I say to you. That's like, really pay attention here, folks. I want to get your attention. What I'm about to say is, is important, so really listen. Truly, truly. He says that 25 times alone in the Gospel of John. In total, Jesus repeated the phrase, I tell you the truth, 75 times. It's so important that Paul said that our salvation depends upon knowing the truth. God wants all men to be saved, is what he said in 1 Timothy 2.4. And to come to what? A knowledge of the truth. Why? 
They have to come to knowledge of the truth because they are in bondage to lies. Again, it is so important that if you don't know the truth, you remain in bondage. If you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. Now, my question is this. If the truth is so important, then why does humanity believe lies? Why do we believe the lies? What do you mean? We believe lies. Trust me. We believe lies. Well, because sin distorts the truth. That's part of the problem. Just listen and pay attention to the relationship between sin, deceit, and truth. Romans 7, 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Paul says, what deceived him? Sin. He also wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And in every sort of evil or sin that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Again, sin deceives. Hebrews 3.13. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we see sin deceiving us, hardening us. And when we consistently reject the truth, what does God do? Well, what is 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12? For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned because they have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God gives them over to believing a lie. Which begs the question, because sin has deceived us, how does man respond to the truth? Well, Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth. Men suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 1.25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Romans 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil. In Acts 20, 30, men will arise and distort the truth. So humanity, just consider this, that is not on the side of truth. There is a side again, truth or lies. If you are not on the side of truth, you're on the side of lies. And when they are on the side of lies, what do we do? We suppress, exchange, reject, and distort the truth. Why? Why do people on this side of lies do that? Because they're acting like their father. Who is their father? John 8, 44 and 46. Very beginning. Two offspring. Remember that? Genesis 3. John 8, 44 through 46 says this. Jesus speaking. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So that tells us that the father of unbelievers, the father of those who are on the side of lies, have a father that rejects the truth. 
that it's his nature to lie. It is who he is. It's his nature to deceive. And his children carry out the desire of Satan, their father. Throughout the ages, this battle for truth rages on. The prophets lament for truth. Isaiah cries out, truth has stumbled in the streets. Truth is nowhere to be found in Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. Jeremiah weeps and exclaims, truth has perished. If you just turn on the news and see what's going on in the world and in our country, you would think, yeah, truth is nowhere to be found. Here's the definition of truth, by the way. It's taken from the Webster's Dictionary. If you go to the, the original Webster's Dictionary in 1828, you'll find this definition of truth. It's, truth is this, conformity to fact or reality, which is basically what R.C. Sproul said. It's that which conforms to fact or reality. It's an exact accordance with, with that which is or has been or shall be, we rely on the truth of the scriptural prophecies. Today's definition of, definition of truth, taken from Webster's Dictionary, reads as this. Truth is defined as the property, as of a statement, of being in accord with fact or reality. But do you notice what's missing from that definition? Where is we rely on the truth of the scriptural prophecies? In other words, fulfilled prophecy was the backbone and is a backbone of the truth of God's word. It proves that God exists, that he's working on all things according to his plan. He's a source of truth. That's taken out of the equation today. But truth does fit with reality the property of being in accord with fact or reality. Now, the Apostle John writes this. Again, I want to take you back to 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. That's the side we're on. And whoever knows God listens to us. If you know God, you will listen to the truth. That will be what you desire. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And this is how we recognize what? The Spirit of Truth, capital S, the Holy Spirit, from the spirit of falsehood, a small s. There's a spirit of truth in the world and a spirit of falsehood. Now, my question for us today, this is where we start to move away from some of this talk about truth as much, and we go right into kind of personally, are you able to discern the spirit of truth versus the spirit of falsehood? Can you tell the difference? Does your life reflect that difference? Because there's a battle going on for your world view. Let me take you through this now. Up in the screen, you can see this. And again, all these visuals I'm giving you is to show you the difference between truth and lies, God and Satan, between the kingdom of heaven in the world, the two sides. 
So on this side, obviously, you have God, and here's the world. Let's just talk about unity. Let's say it, talk about unity in terms of marriage. What does God's word say? Marriage is defined as a man and a woman coming together, right? That's been the foundation, the bedrock of society for, from the very beginning. What does the world say? Whereas God preaches unity, man and woman, the world says division. I'm going to bring together divorce. That which is to be together, I'm going to divorce. I'm going to divide. How about diversity? God says marriage is between a man and a woman. That's diversity. The world says, I want to bring together that which is forbidden. I'll have a man with a man and a woman with a woman. That's the way of the world. God says this. In relationships, there are roles. Between a man and a woman. Between a husband and a wife. Between a parent and a child. The world says no. They promote jealousy. Women say, I will not play that role. I will not submit. In fact, submission, if you talk about submission... It's as if it is a dirty word or a swear word. There are roles within the very nature of God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Submission and a mutual submission is a beautiful thing. And the world says, no, I will not play those roles. God says you're responsible for your actions. The world teaches blame. And we are a, a society of litigation, a culture of litigation. And of course, a classic example of this is the lady who, the Stella Awards, the lady who spilled her coffee, her hot McDonald's coffee on her leg, and so she sued McDonald's and won. I think it was like a million dollars or something like that. Why are they responsible for the coffee that you know is hot? Because if you got lukewarm coffee or cold coffee, you'd complain too. So what do you want? There is no responsibility for actions, according to the world. We will blame. That's why God says there's authority. The world says what? Rebellion. Can you say Chaz? The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Rebellion against authority. And you know how that's going to end. God says, I want there to be freedom. The world says, there will be bondage. Think about the concept of forgiveness. When are you really free? When someone hurts you, you're offended. When are you free from that is when you forgive. You will no longer be in bondage to that hurt, that pain. The world says, don't forgive, get even. Revenge, vengeance. If that's the route that you go, you'll be in bondage to, that, to an unforgiving heart, and your life will be miserable. There's a battle going on for your worldview. You may recognize this. 
from the class that I talked about on worldviews. We believe in a personal God. And notice that these other two, atheism and pantheism, this is God doesn't exist, and this is every other world religion, they're completely opposite. You can't, God doesn't exist, you can't know him. We value human nature because we are made in the image of God. No, we're like animals. Right? We are even God himself, these religions say. Our authority comes from God. It's divine. No, our authority is human reason or personal experience, spiritual experience. Truth, we believe in an absolute truth. Things function the way they do because it's created by Jesus Christ who is holding all things together and because he is the source of truth. That is what reality is. No. Truth is relative. Or it is whatever I think it to be. It's personal. Again, this is why we have what's going on in the world today. Why people think that they can go and take over a six block of, of Seattle. I am my own truth. And we believe that there is evil in the world today because man's in rebellion towards God. And the only explanation that atheism has is that we simply are ignorant. And so the answer to them is we simply need to educate people. Then there wouldn't be evil in the world. And folks, that lie has been out there, I don't know for how long, and it has failed over and over, time and time again. If I educate people, will it stop them from their, their behavior? No. Because at the very core, mankind is corrupt. And that's, you know, by the way, that's an anthropology. Totally two sides. What do we say about human nature? Is man basically good or bad? Well, we're bad. Any parent will tell you that. That fits with reality. I don't have to teach my kids to steal or to lie, to teach them to tell the truth. The world says, though, that human nature is basically good. But no, either the problem of evil exists, either we're in rebellion, which makes sense with reality, or we're ignorant, or they simply forgot that they're God, and that's why there's evil in the world today. I want you to see that the, just the, the truth claims of God, they are consistent, they are logical, they are reasonable, they work, and they work even in a fallen world. And when people follow them, it leads to peace, prosperity, happiness, or satisfaction in life. On the opposite side, you have this web of lies and deceit that the world, the flesh, and the devil push on us. As you see these different views of the world from atheism and pantheism, they're illogical. They're inconsistent. They lead only to pain, to suffering, to weeping, to disorder, and ultimately death. And I'm not done here. I want to give you some more. Look at this, the, this battle between the truth claims of God and the truth claims of Satan. 
I just came up with this on my own. I mean, again, on one side is God. He has a kingdom of heaven. Satan has a kingdom, but it's of the world. And you see this contrast between being of the world and not of the world. We have a holy father. Satan is a sinful father. His children are righteous children. Satan's children are wicked children. We are to live holy lives as children of God. They're, they can only live evil, sinful, wicked lives. We have a spirit of truth. They have a spirit of falsehood. God is the source of truth. Satan is the source of lies. Even the way God speaks to us or leads us, he, his voice will still you. It will reassure you, lead you, enlighten, forgive, calms, encourages, comforts you. And look at this big contrast Satan will rush you, frighten you, push you, confuse you, condemn you, stress you, discourage you, worry you. Everyone inside of truth listens to me, Jesus said. It's obvious, I hope you can see now, because I've gone to great lengths so far in the sermon to see we are to be different. If we are on the side of truth, we will be different. Your lifestyle will be different because your thinking will be different. Because within you, you'll be born again and you have the Spirit of God and the energy and the power and the ability to live a different life. And if your life isn't different, then maybe you're not on the side of truth. Let me bring this home, make it personal. Belief in an absolute moral truth rooted in God's word, it is rapidly eroding, not only among all American adults, but also in those who grew up in the church. And what I'm about to share with you is, is just recent, in the last month or two of research put out um, by a recent survey from the Cultural Research Center based at Arizona Christian University. And of course, this was led by George Barna and his team. This was quoted from an article by Record Low Number of Americans Hold Biblical Worldview by Brandon Showalter. Let me say it again. Record number. Record low number of Americans hold a biblical worldview. The things I just went over with you guys. This is from March 31st, 2020. I'll read you another quote from a, a, a May 2020 article as well. Here are the depressing, uh, disturbing, and staggering numbers. Only 6% of Americans possess a biblical worldview. So whatever 6% of 330 million hold a biblical worldview. What's disturbing Alarming, really, is this. 25 years ago, 12% of the adult population held a biblical worldview. Now, here's the thing about it. That this decline from 12% to 6% over the last 25 years, it takes into account... Uh, 
the following according to George Barna. This is what he said. If you truly believe something, and I want you to hear me on this, if you truly believe something, you integrate it into how you live and your lifestyle reflects those beliefs. Do you understand what he's saying there? That if you truly believe something, you'll integrate it into your life. Your lifestyle will reflect what you truly believe. So what he's saying is the last 25 years that Americans, including Christians, don't really believe the truth. And what did Jesus say? If you are on the side of truth, you will what? Listen to me. And we all know, and I'll get to this, listen means obey. Approximately one-fifth of those who attend evangelical Protestant churches espouse a biblical worldview. So 20% say they have a biblical worldview. But here's the thing. There's a new Christian out there that they call notional Christians. Have you ever heard that before? They are Americans, and this is really concerning, who identify as Christian but do not profess to know Christ personally as Savior. Now, do you want to know how many of those, what percentage of our population, of the 330 million people that make up America, identify as notional Christians? A staggering 54% of the U.S. population claim to be notional Christians. And again, they say they're Christian, but they do not profess to know Christ personally as Savior. Of that group, very few of them, listen to this, just one-tenth of one percent hold a biblical worldview. Let me put this into perspective for you. I did the math. 330 million people live in the United States. 54% of 330 million people is 30 million people. 1% of 30 million is 300,000. One-tenth of 300,000 is 30,000 people. So only 30,000 Americans who call themselves notional Christians hold a biblical worldview. So, you know, the low number of people, my math may be off here, the point is this. If there are 7.6 million people in the state of Washington, the low number of people that live in Washington that hold a, they call themselves notional Christians. I mean, it's, they don't profess to know Christ personally, but hold a biblical worldview. The author goes on to say this, that the societal shift toward non-Christian worldviews like postmodernism, Marxism, secular humanism, and modern mysticism is most clearly reflected in values. I think you'll find this interesting because these are the latest values. You might recognize this. The widely accepted biblical worldview yielded the following values. This is what I call yesterday's values. Like civic duty, uh, hard work, humility, faith, family, moderation in the rule of law. 
Those are now considered yesterday's values. And take a look at those values because they've been the bedrock, these values have, of our society for ages. Here are today's values, and you'll recognize these. Acceptance. You, you see that, by the way, the, the, again, the contrast. And again, that's why that's up there in the difference in values. Acceptance. Now, it's not that we never accept people as a nation hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's just that there's a point to where you don't accept. You can't accept all. You can't accept people that are murderers and thieves. That's why we have places called prisons for them. They harm society. Comfort, man, that's a god in our world today. Control, entertainment, entitlement, experiences, expression, freedom, and happiness. Unless American experiences, this is according to Tracy Munsell. She's the executive director and associate professor of political science at Arizona Christian University. She writes this, and I thought it was so good. Unless America experiences a steady increase in people reflecting a biblical worldview in their lives, America's future is more likely to resemble that of nations characterized by moral and behavioral chaos. <laughs> Again, it's amazing how God's timing that I'm talking about this with all that is going on in our world today. I did not plan this out. I discovered this stuff as I was preparing this sermon. There is behavioral chaos, what, 20 miles from here? Alternative, she goes on, alternative perspectives such as postmodern Marxism and secular humanism, and you know this, drive American thinking and lifestyles these days. It is not those values that you see up there on the screen. Those are the values of these other worldviews. What we experience in our nation today, and here is the thing, and this is where it really hits us at home. What we experience in our nation today will not change until we, meaning believers, replace the cause of the prevalent thinking and behavior. And that cause is our worldview. In other words, how are we going to change the culture? Everyone who is on the side of truth, what? Listens to me. Listening means what? Obey me. Our lifestyle, in other words, what this whole series, by the way, different, is going to be about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We are to be what? What influence are we to have in the world? Be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Salt not only adds flavor, but it does what? It prevents decay. And in the states, like Washington, where there are so few believers, there is less and less preventative decaying. 
Now, the light will shine brighter in the darkness, but what these numbers are telling us as a whole in America is that Christians, in our influence, the salt has become what? It's lost its saltiness. The light has been put under a peck measure. Where is the light of the world? God's design is to go through his children. You are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the salt of the earth. It's, it, it, it's not happening. That's the point. Are we different? These numbers make it very, very clear. This isn't an easy thing to say. It may not be easy to hear, but the reality is we're not different. This is what these numbers are showing. And all we have to do is look at reality, look at our world around us that is eroding. It is falling apart. It is decaying because we're not living different lives. We're not listening to God. Let's go back to this issue of truth. Truth is defined, again, as that which conforms to fact or reality. Let's go to the other side of that. How do you define insanity? Well, it's defined as losing touch with reality. So here's truth, that which conforms to reality, understands reality, lives according to reality. Someone who's insane has lost touch with reality. So, imagine you're out driving your car and it breaks down. Uh, your cell phone is out of battery, it's got no life in it. And so you have to do the unthinkable, you to walk to the nearest place and ask for help. And so you come upon a building and you enter, and you are greeted by a man who screams, I am Napoleon. Another man across the room yells, you are not Napoleon, I am God, and I made you Caesar. Where do you suppose you have just landed? In an insane asylum. In an insane asylum holds people that have what? Lost touch with reality. What is insanity? Here's the point. It's not only losing touch with reality, but that those two men, the one who claims to be Napoleon and the one who claims to be God, believe the lie is real. Do you understand that? It's not this they're not in touch with reality, but there's a lie that they believe and they believe it's real. Because when you believe that something is real, you act upon that reality. Our actions reflect what we believe to be really real. You follow me so far? Our actions reflect, our lifestyles reflect what we believe to be really real. So what do these statistics I just read to you tell us? By our actions, the church, Christians, children of God, 
believe that the lies of Satan are real and the truth claims of God are not real. Because our lives aren't different. And it, it's a, a been a problem from the beginning. Let me give you an example. From Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We'll go over this in greater detail later on, but here Jesus addresses the issue of anxiety or worry. Remember that we were this like last year briefly. If God has promised to provide for you, and he has promised to provide for his children, and already has provided for you, and you still worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, as the scriptures say, or about your body, what you will wear, by your actions, by your lifestyle, who are you really believing is true? The truth claims of God to provide for you and the overwhelming evidence to back that up. Or are you choosing to worry because you simply believe the lies that Satan, that God will not provide for you? It's absolutely unreasonable to be anxious. It's illogical. Unreasonable makes no sense to worry at all if you are a child of God, because God is what? Promise to provide for you. We sang the song, he is a promise keeper, the song Waymaker. But yet I see believers that lives are filled with anxiety and worry. So what, if, if you struggle with that, what do, you, what do you believe to be really real, really true? Well, it's the lies of Satan because that's not what God's word has said to you. It's not what he has said to you. So either you believe the, the truth claims of Satan, which are lies, or the truth claims of God, which are truth. And you have an opportunity to live that out. And I know most or some of us have in the world today because you've seen the world freak out with this whole COVID-19 thing and the hoarding that's gone on and the lack of peace and the worry and anxiety. And the, the contrast is believers. You don't, we're not worried. Well, why? That makes no sense. Why? Because God will provide. And so this same issue was being dealt with in a very conservative society thousands of years ago because there's a war going on. Everyone in the sight of truth listens to me. It's again what Jesus said. This is the point. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. There was another article, and I'll, I'll send it to you, from the husband of the wife that I just read. Tracy Munsell's got a husband. He's the head of Arizona Christian University. And he wrote about how the, the biblical borings or the biblical foundations that our society, America, has been founded upon are, are so disintegrating that the basic moral choices that you know, Americans are, are, are making as a society as a whole, are now based upon self. We determine what is right and wrong. And it's rapidly going that way. And so we see that, again, play out with what's going on up in Seattle. And even all across our country with the whole uh, protests. Nobody is safe. I, I saw a, a, a quote from Tiger Woods. He says, we should be able to peacefully protest and not destroy our neighborhoods by burning them down and rioting and looting. And do you know that he got, for that reasonable 
statement. He got slammed by the media and by people on Twitter saying this. And this is what I read these. I have a right to, to, to riot and to loot and to steal and to destroy. Now, where does that come from? Where does that thinking come from? That person believes they themselves have their, they determine what is right and wrong because we've moved away from absolute truth. It's what's driving this cancel culture of ours. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And I want to ask you to really, really listen to Jesus in this sermon series entitled Different. Really take a deep look at your heart in your life. Do you really believe God, his truth claims? Does your lifestyle reflect that? And I'm going to close with a quote from Henry Nouwen. It will tie together everything. It's taken from his book called Making All Things New. You've heard this quote before, but we need to be reminded of it. He writes this. From all that I said about our worried, overfilled lives, it is clear that we are usually surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to truly hear our God when he is speaking to us. We've often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to understand in which direction he calls us. Thus, our lives have become absurd. In the word absurd, we find the Latin word certus, which means deaf. A spiritual life requires discipline because we need to learn to listen, there's the word again, to God, who constantly speaks, but whom we seldom hear. If you were to ask me, I believe that most Christians are living absurd lives. They are deaf to God and his ways. When, however, now one goes on to write, we learn to listen, our lives become obedient lives. The word obedient comes from the Latin word audire, which means listening. And so any children that have parents, and you say to your parents, I'm listening to you, <laughs> or they say to you, are you listening to me? They mean, do you understand and you are obeying me? Because everyone on the side of truth, what? Listens to me, meaning everyone on the side of truth obeys me. Everyone on the side of truth lives a different life. That's how you know you're on the side of truth. A spiritual discipline is necessary in order to move from an absurd life or a deaf life to an obedient life, to a listening life. From a life filled with noisy worries to a life in which there is some free inner space where we can listen to our God and follow his guidance. I love this. Jesus' life was a life of obedience. He was always listening to the Father. What did he do, by the way? You read about Jesus in his life, what did he do? Because he frequently 
pulled away from the crowds and went to go and be with his father. And what did they do? They talked. He listened. Enjoyed fellowship with God. Jesus' life was a life of obedience. He was always listening to the Father, always attentive to his voice, always alert for his directions. Jesus was all ear. And that is true prayer. Being all ear for God. The core of all prayer is indeed listening, obediently standing in the presence of God. And so I'm asking you to examine yourself this week. Are you really listening to God? Are you really, do you really believe, when I say listening, do you really believe the truth claims of God and does your lifestyle reflect it? That is how you are different. And we'll talk about a Christian's character, a Christian's influence, a Christian's righteousness, all this as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, we lift you up this morning. Make us like Jesus, who was always listening, attentive to your voice, obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.